Hi, Andy. Hello, Victoria. So today we have a longtime teacher from our center, Dr. Shauna Shapiro, who's an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness meditation. She's a psychologist, yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. And also a researcher. Yes. So she does a lot of different things, and she's just also a wonderful person. You'll get a sense of her. Okay, let's start. Dr. Shauna Shapiro is an internationally recognized expert on mindfulness and self-compassion. She is an author, a psychologist, and a professor at Santa Clara University. Dr. Shapiro has presented her research all over the world and on her TEDx talk, The Power of Mindfulness, which has been viewed more than three million times. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. It makes sense to start with the obvious. The word mindfulness is being used more and more often, and yet it's not always fully understood. So would you please give your definition for our listeners. Absolutely. I agree. I think mindfulness has become so popular, but it's been kind of diluted in its understanding. So I've really spent actually two decades of my academic career defining mindfulness. At the most basic level, it's about attention, right? Be here now. We've heard that phrase from Ram Dass. It's beautiful. And what we're learning is that paying attention is actually quite difficult So our minds wander approximately 47% of the time. In fact, if you're listening, you might notice it already wandered (laughs) off in the first minute. And so part of mindfulness is just learning how to stabilize and train our attention. However, it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's also about why we're paying attention, which is our intention. So what's important to us? Because we have lots of different choices. So our intention helps us prioritize and helps us reconnect with our values, and then our attitude, which is how you pay attention. So paying attention with an attitude of kindness and curiosity, as opposed to kind of judgment and striving. So mindfulness is really these three key elements are intention, attention, and attitude. I love the attitude part because I have to say so often when I talk to a patient about the potential of a meditation practice, they say, I can't meditate. I'm no good at meditating. Mm-hmm. I've tried that. I can't sit still. And it's there's just so much negative self-talk and negative self-judgment in that. Yes. Yes. In fact, it was really interesting. So my first experience of meditation, I had gone to Thailand to study at a monastery and I had read all about mindfulness, but I hadn't really ever practiced. And my understanding was that it was about attention. And while I was at the monastery, I noticed like all of us that my mind was wandering and that it was really hard to pay attention. And I got really frustrated with myself. I was like, what's wrong with you? You're terrible at meditation, just like Mm -hmm. your patients are saying. And I really started judging myself. And luckily, um, a monk arrived kind of halfway through this silent meditation retreat, and I was sharing with him my struggles and my Mm -hmm. frustration and my impatience. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing judgment, impatience, frustration. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said these five words. He said, what you practice grows stronger. We know this now with neuroplasticity, our repeated thoughts, emotions, negative self-talk, they shape our brain. So he explained to me that mindfulness isn't just about paying attention. 
It's about how you pay attention, this attitude of kindness, right? Otherwise, we're just practicing more judgment. We're carving out these neural pathways of judgment. And so I agree. I think this attitude is especially important and probably the hardest part of mindfulness. Yeah, it makes me think of something that you talk about, Andy, a lot when you talk about mental health and flourishing, and that's to really watch your brain's tendency to ruminate. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit and how you think it relates to meditation practice. Well, first of all, I'd like to point out to people that all of us are meditating all of the time, but are unaware of it. When you watch a movie, you are in a state of very focused attention. I mean, that is like the essence of mindfulness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we're not doing that with intention for conscious So you purpose. get lots of meditation points then. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. And I also see in people that have difficulty in relationships with food, a lot of the reason is that they are not eating mindfully. While they're eating, they're paying their attention to other things, watching television, thinking thoughts, and the eating is unconscious. And in that state, they eat more and they probably eat things that aren't so good for them. So it, it, I think this is a matter of practice. In terms of rumination, psychologists and psychiatrists have tended to view rumination as a negative, that we talk about obsessive rumination. But I think rumination, there's, there is a potential positive aspect to rumination. Evolutionary psychologists point out, and I think this is very interesting, that the tendency to rumination may have been selected through evolution because it has a survival advantage. Mm -hmm. That when people are faced with very challenging situations, those who ruminate on the problem obsessively either come up with a solution or they decide it's in insoluble. But that may be a trait that we have because evolution has seen it as valuable. I completely agree with that. And I think here's what's interesting, because I study a lot of rumination. In fact, mm -hmm. rumination mm -hmm. is really at the heart <clears throat> of depression um, yeah. when it's awry. But I right. totally agree with you that when it's used skillfully, um, it can be really beneficial. And I think one thing that helps me is discernment. Mm -hmm. that mindfulness is really a way to see clearly and be discerning and to think through problems. Rumination is where you get kind of caught in a loop right. and you're actually not conscious anymore. It's spiraling. And I think that's a really important distinction for people because the other pieces people ask, well, isn't judgment and shame, self-judgment, shame, weren't they evolutionarily important, right? This is how we stayed within the tribe and yep. we, we felt remorse when we did bad things. And so I want to be really clear when I'm talking about this attitude of kindness, mm -hmm. it's not it's not that we aren't seeing clearly. So if I make a mistake, healthy remorse is great. It's toxic shame that I'm talking mm -hmm. about that is unhealthy and it's toxic rumination. And what we know as a clinical psychologist and a scientist is that when we are in those states, it actually shuts down the learning centers of the brain mm -hmm. and keeps us stuck in the very problem we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So that gets to that piece about intention and how we set an intention. And that's a part of mindfulness meditation that I think actually doesn't get discussed very much. And I'm wondering if you would, would speak about that a bit. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because people often kind of think of intentions as these kind of vague, spiritual, mystical concepts. And intentions are neurochemicals. When you set an intention that you care about, and I want to emphasize that you care about, it's not just some 
thing that you think you should do. But when you actually listen deeply to your heart and your values and you set an intention, you say, this is the direction I want to head. What happens is you release dopamine, which is the neuromodulator of motivation and learning. And it really gives you this kind of energy to start moving towards your goals. So I always begin when I'm working with patients with intention. And I also clarify that you might not know immediately that part of intention is a practice, just like you said. And it's about learning to listen, not just cognitively and mentally, but with your whole being. Uh, You're very involved with ketamine therapy. And what do you see the place of that in in relation to mindfulness training or dealing with emotional problems? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And what I'll note is I'm actually very newly involved uh, <laughs> and exploring the research in ketamine therapy. My dear friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew Huberman, actually did a beautiful podcast on ketamine, reviewing all of the literature. And after exploring the research, I've partnered with MindBloom for a kind of trial of introducing self-compassion and mindfulness as a way to help people um, utilize the ketamine therapy that they're already doing. So part of that is intention, right? Really teaching people kind of the preparation stage, which I think is so important, right? We all know set and setting and psychedelics is incredibly important. And I'll throw ketamine into this category and kind of speak more broadly about psychedelics. So set and setting. So we begin with intention setting and teach people how to do that. And then also, I think it's really important that these medicines open a neuroplastic window and that we utilize it, right? Because neuroplasticity isn't necessarily positive. People Mm -hmm. often kind of assume that, but it's really like that beautiful monk explained to me, whatever you practice grows stronger. So if you're practicing unhealthy rumination or unhealthy self-judgment or anxiety, then you're growing those pathways. So I think it's really important if people choose to use any kind of psychedelic therapy, that there be some container and some training and some real attention to the integration piece, right? Yeah. So you mentioned that study with ketamine. What other studies are you excited about in the realm of either meditation or mindfulness uh, meditation? It, It just seems that this is an exploding area of science. Absolutely. It's so exciting, truthfully, because I started this research, and I have to say, Dr. Weil, I started it back when I was getting my PhD and started working with the integrative medicine program there as well. And Back then, I mean, it was 1996, 1997. I think my first paper was 1998. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very popular. I mean, you all were really the pioneers, but I was kind of in there in the field. And I remember my academic advisor said, you're going to ruin your career if you (laughs) go into mindfulness and meditation. But I was so compelled because of my experiences at the Mm -hmm. monasteries. I had experienced such healing that I said, I have to understand this better. And What I would say is if you look at the literature now, you asked me about the research, these past decades, it really, there's been exponential growth. And I want to be really clear, mindfulness and meditation are not a magic bullet. It's not a cure-all. But when you look at the literature from psychological well-being to physiological impact to even kind of impacting the length of our telomeres and the health of our mitochondria and slowing the aging process, it's really phenomenal. And I think part of it is it's training the mind. It's almost like mental fitness, 
right? We all agree physical fitness is important, but we didn't used to believe that's kind of a relatively new understanding that exercise and diet are part of medicine. And I think we're just kind of at the tip of this revolution that we can train our mind. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of training our minds, but of course, I'm an educator, so I like training the mind. <laughs> what do you see as the potential? If you are a regular practitioner of mindfulness meditation, what's the potential? What can your mind do that it doesn't do on a day-to-day basis without that practice? Mm. I want to start small, but I also want to say I think it's infinite in Mm. terms of, I think people misunderstand this practice. It's not about perfection or getting to some point. It's about evolution. In fact, perfection is the antithesis of evolution. And so I really see this as a developmental practice Mm -hmm. that never ends. And so what's interesting when I'm working with patients, they start to see small things. They notice, well, I'm more present with my kids, or Mm -hmm. I felt this sense of peace in these in-between moments of my day that I never felt before. Or I'm actually like Dr. Wiles said, I'm tasting my food for the first Mm -hmm. time and I'm slowing down and I'm realizing I don't need as much or I'm making different choices. So those are some basic things. But As we keep deepening in our practice, and I really want to emphasize this, we're never just practicing for ourselves, Mm -hmm. that everything we do ripples out. And part of the research that I'm most excited about is the impact on our compassion for others Mm -hmm. and our compassion for ourselves. That what's interesting is when you look at the insula, which is really this part of the brain that's really responsible for empathy and compassion. When you see someone similar to you in pain or hurt themselves or sad, you're like, oh, ow, and your insula gets activated. You feel it. You feel compassion naturally, pretty quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. When you see someone who you've identified as different, the insula stays quiet. Mm -hmm. Now, that is really important. And I want to emphasize, it's not your fault, right? It's not that you're this mean, terrible, prejudiced person. It's just the way we've been hardwired. What's so exciting and so fascinating is that relatively brief mindfulness practice, when you bring them back into this kind of setting where in the laboratory where we study this, the insula gets activated in both situations when it's someone similar to you and someone different than you. The implications of this are are so tremendous that mindfulness really can help us start to see each other clearly without all of the separation and to have more compassion. So I think that's one area that's incredible. The other is it helps us be compassionate with ourselves and to treat ourselves with greater kindness to actually be on our own team. And I have to say, as a scientist and a professor, the fact that I go around the world teaching self-love is kind of hard because I would rather teach something that's a little like, I don't know, neuroplasticity or attention and focus. But what I found in my research is this capacity to be kind and compassionate with yourself changes everything changes everything from your own health to how you treat others in the world. And so these are areas I'm really passionate about. I'm sure you would agree that our society could use more compassion, especially at the present time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be able to see each other and listen to each Mm -hmm. other and not get so locked in on our differences. I mean, that's the other thing. Mindfulness increases our cognitive flexibility our ability to hold different perspectives and even paradoxes where we're like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is true and this is true. Mm -hmm. 
Is there a brief, because of course we're on a podcast practice, that you would be able to teach our listeners on the air that would help them develop their self-compassion? Yes. I'm so glad you did not tell me beforehand that we were going to do this. I'm so (laughs) glad that you're doing this. And I'll tell you, because I'm also an educator like both of you. And what I want to say is that insight doesn't translate into learning. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. It's great. It's important. It's the beginning, but practice is what mm-hmm. translates into learning. So I'm glad we're going to have time for a short <laughs> practice. So I want to invite you, if you're listening, to let your eyes close or just lower your gaze. And first, just take a moment to gather your attention back into yourself. So we've been talking and listening, having lots of ideas. So just take a moment to kind of gather in all of those gossamer threads, all of those tendrils that have been outside into the body and just notice that you're breathing. Take a moment to actually feel the breath as it goes in and out of your nose. See if you can relax the body 5% more. Just soften, let go of any tension that you don't need right now. So maybe soften the jaw, roll out the shoulders, wiggle the fingers and toes, and just rest in the body with this awareness. And setting an intention to be present, to be kind, to be curious. Actually being interested in what it feels like right now to be here. Then I want to invite you to place a hand on your heart and see if you can find your heartbeat. If you don't feel it, don't worry, it's definitely working. But see if you can just sense it. The heart is sending oxygen and nutrients to every cell in your body right now. It's taking care of you. So I want you to see if you can take in that caring. And in fact, noticing that even just placing a hand on your heart is a gesture of self-care. And it releases oxytocin, that lovely hormone that creates safety and a sense of connection. So this is good for you. If you think you're doing it wrong, let that go. And know that just this is planting a seed that whatever we practice grows stronger. And so maybe setting an intention to bring just a little more kindness toward yourself. Feel your breath, feel your body, and put your hand back in your lap. And for the last 30 seconds of the practice, I want you to call to mind one person that you're grateful for. Whoever pops into your mind, it could be even your puppy dog or a friend, child, grandchild. It's one person where as soon as you think of them, you feel gratitude. Silently sending out a thank you, a moment of gratitude for them. And then taking one more breath in and out. Slowly, gently, you can let your eyes open. I always like to just stretch my arms over my head. So if you want to do that, you can. Good job. Okay. Thank you. That was very refreshing. (laughs) Yes. 
Andy, sometimes you say after you teach four, seven, eight breath that you don't really want to come come back. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to stay in that. Um, Shauna, one of the things that I think is really remarkable about this moment in time is that we do actually have in our personal computers that we carry so often in our hands technologies that can help us with this kind of practice. Do you have any favorites? I know I do. I don't know, Andy, if you have a favorite, but I find it really useful. I recommend it to most of the patients that I see. And and I'm wondering if you think if there's any bad parts about using technology to guide uh, a mindfulness practice. I love that question. So I was very resistant to mindful apps in the beginning, and I've completely shifted my mind partly because of the research, which is pretty mm-hmm. compelling on how effective it is, partly because I've tried them and I was like, mm-hmm. this is actually really helpful. So you asked me though about the kind of maybe possible pitfalls of them. And mm-hmm. so here's what I'd like to say is, I think that you can get lost very easily in your mindfulness practice. I think you can go down the wrong path where you're just sitting there in self-judgment especially if you have an inclination towards depression, what we've actually found is that mindfulness isn't that beneficial for people who are clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly helpful once you have recovered and in fact prevents relapse from major depressive disorder, 78% compared to a control group. So that's huge because many people relapse from major depressive disorder. So I think as a clinical psychologist, I want to be very careful about who's using the apps and then how. Um, A lot of the apps focus just on kind of paying attention. They're not as nuanced to bring in the attitude and the intention. And as I said, I think those all three work synergistically together and it's not really mindfulness if, you know, you're missing that secret sauce of, of Mm -hmm. kindness. Um, So I think the pitfalls are, it's not as nuanced. Now, if you learn about mindfulness and then use the app just to keep you steady and going. So for example, if you go to the gym and you have a few training sessions with someone that teaches you how to use the weights and the materials at the gym, then I think it's fine to keep going in with the Mm -hmm. app. And so that's what I would say. In terms of great apps, I think everyone has their different preferences. I really like Sam Harris's app. I've been using that and exploring it. Um, Andrew Huberman and David Sinclair and I are working with a Swiss company called Virtusen. And so we've recently launched an app that has a lot of my meditation practices and then other longevity tools but I think everyone needs to find what works best for them. Yeah, one that I really like is Insight Timer. That's mm. like having insight is how it's spelled. And I like it because it's almost free. There's 200,000 free things on it. And then you can do a paid version if you run out of the 200,000. <laughs> yes, I love that. I have a lot of free meditations on there that I've offered. And I think they're a wonderful company too. Yeah, Andy, do you have a favorite? No, I don't use them. All right. I, I like to really limit the uh, amount of device time that I spend. Yes. And you have a long time meditation practice that preceded apps. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you another technology question. I've been very intrigued recently by devices that either stimulate directly or tone the vagus nerve. And I'm wondering how you think about these in relationship to a mindfulness practice. Hmm, That's great. Well, I don't know about the devices in terms Mm -hmm. of technology for that. 
I do think the vagus nerve is incredibly important. And I think there's lots of ways to kind of bring it into the practice. A lot of times I have people even just do kind of humming, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a technology, but Mm -hmm. it is. Andrew Huberman has talked a lot about the physiological side. So I have people do that where they're making the sound Mm -hmm. and they're they're activating the vagus nerve, which helps calm us down. Mm -hmm. I I think polyvagal theory is brilliant. I think this understanding that our nervous system has to, we have to learn how to soothe and help it come back to rest is incredibly important. Yeah. So I've asked you so many questions and yet maybe there's something else that you feel is important to bring up. Mm, um, I think for me, I actually just finished teaching a, a workshop and for me, there's two things that kept coming up over and over mm-hmm. again. I think the first is just to use the science as this kind of motivator or sense of hope or optimism. People get so excited when they learn about neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and the realization that it's never too late, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what age you are, it's never too late to begin again Mm -hmm. and to really gather these resources to help train your mind and your heart and your body in healthy ways so I think that's really radical and important for people to know. The second thing is that you can begin again in any moment. So you can begin again. And that's what was really fun. And this last week at the workshop was people think, oh, I've messed up or I've made a mistake or I've ruined this day or even just with eating when you're trying to eat healthy and then you eat the bad thing and you're like, oh, forget about it. And what mindfulness does is says, every moment's fresh. Let's begin again right here. Who do you choose to be? What do you want to practice? What do you want to grow? Well, that seems like a very beautiful, hopeful message to end this conversation on. Shauna, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for your work in teaching mindfulness and researching mindfulness and being a teacher at our center. We're just so grateful to you. Oh, thank you so much. Both of you have impacted my life so incredibly, truly. In fact, when I was leading the meditation, The reason I added the gratitude piece on at the end is I was feeling such deep gratitude for both (laughs) of you. And then I was sending you gratitude and I was almost (laughs) levitating off my chair. Really, it's it's an honor to be part of this journey and what you all have created in the world and how you're impacting others. So thank you. Thank you. 